This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your latest weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, we're looking back at a relatively recent chapter of Stonehenge's long history and the story of a little girl whose father was custodian of Stonehenge in the 1930s. Jean Grey, now 90, has recently shared her recollections of living near the site with the monument's current custodians, English Heritage. And we're joined now by senior properties historian Susan Greeney, who's been involved in gathering this oral history, some of which we'll hear shortly. Hello, Susan. Hi. First of all, Susan, how did this audio recording come about and how did English Heritage learn about this lady whose father was custodian of the stones nearly a 100 years ago? Jean's granddaughter, Emma, got in touch with us at English Heritage back in January of this year. She wrote to us to tell us about some photographs of Stonehenge from the 1930s that she was digitising that were from her family photo albums. And in the email, she described how her grandmother, who was now 90, had some amazing memories of living at Stonehenge in the 1930s. And this came through to us and we thought this was fascinating. And so we got in touch with Emma to ask her a bit more about her grandmother and about the stories. And we suggested that she did an interview with her recording so we could capture some of these memories. So they did a really lovely interview for us and um, we'll be able to share some of those stories here. So as we play these clips throughout the podcast then, Susan, can you explain who we'll be hearing? So the interview is done by Emma. Jean's granddaughter and so she's asking the questions and then the other voice that you'll hear is is Jean with her memories of Stonehenge. So where is Emma's grandmother Jean Grey who's 90 living now? She is in Australia and the rest of the family is also in Australia so this was a recording done on the other side of the world for us. Wow and how long did her father who's John Moffat I understand work as the custodian for Stonehenge? He was there between 1934 and 1938. Mainly maintaining the grounds and showing visitors around. In those days, there wasn't so many visitors. There'd be school trips and people who got a car and could come out, or archaeologists and historians who were interested. And at that time, Jean was between four and eight years old, roughly. So she was quite a small girl. This is her very early memories. But obviously, it was quite a large and significant part of her childhood. Yes, primary school age sort of thing, really. So John Moffat, Jean's father, who was the custodian, who was he actually employed by? Because obviously, English heritage, as it is today, didn't exist under that name at the time. That's right. So at the time, Stonehenge was looked after and run by an organisation called the Office of Works. And they were a government department who were responsible for looking after all royal and government property. Slightly later in 1940, they became the Ministry of Works, which many people might have heard of, which is in effect the predecessor of what is now English heritage. Do you remember how he got that job? The family history was that the armed forces were being reduced at that time and he was offered a commission. But in those days, you needed a private income to have a commission. So uh, as a result of that, he got the job at the Stones. And recently I've been reading and found out that the budget about 1933-34 resulted in a lot of cuts in unemployment benefits and in the armed forces. Mm. What did John have to do then? 
as custodian? He was the sole custodian of the site and his role was to look after the site in terms of maintenance. So that involved um, mowing the grass, ensuring it was clean and tidy. But he also welcomed visitors, took tickets, and he was responsible for showing important dignitaries and things around the site. So it was kind of many featured role. You know, he had lots of different tasks to do. As a custodian, he would have worn what was then the Office of Works custodian's uniform, which was a rather smart hat and sort of suit jacket. So he would have been, if you look at photographs from from the early part of Stonehenge's history, you often see the custodian in that uniform standing around near the stones or or on the edge of the picture. So he, he would have been the key person, really, to looking after Stonehenge for those four years. Were you allowed to stay up on for the midsummer solstice? <laughs> Definitely not <laughs> after bed. <laughs> but uh, I can remember my father getting ready for the evening and uh, having an early tea and just himself getting ready yeah. in his clothes and that. And he was literally a one-man band, which is quite amazing. What did the work involve, apart from sort of meeting all these various people who wanted to come and see the site? Uh, did he have to do anything else? Um, Jean describes in her interview about one of the things he had to do was keep the Aubrey holes clear of grass. Now, the Aubrey holes were a series of pits around the outside of Stonehenge that had only recently, at the end of the 1920s, been excavated. And that at the time, they'd marked them with white concrete discs to enable visitors to see where these pits had been. So obviously, one of his roles was to keep them trimmed and, and clear of grass so that visitors could see them. But I think he also had a role in um, removing vermin from the site. He had a lot of trouble with moles apparently molehills and keeping the, the moles away from the monument. Now, these are all tasks that we still do today. We, we still mow the grass. We still have a, a mole man who comes. And so in a way, the jobs that he did in the 1930s are now done by several different teams of people. We know that um, Jean and her dad, John, lived near the stones. Her mum was there as well. Do we know how near the family actually lived near the stones and whereabouts in relation to the current A303 that people might recognise? Yeah, the Moffat family, so that was Jean and her parents and her her little brother, they all lived in what's known as um, Stonehenge Cottages, which are now demolished, but stood right in the triangle of roads between the A303, which is the, the main road that goes past Stonehenge today, and the old A344, which was the road that we closed back in 2013. So it was right within sight of Stonehenge, but in the corner of the triangle of land that Stonehenge sits on that was owned by the government at that time. And the cottages were a pair of semi-detached cottages. They had been built in 1917. One was for the caretaker and his family, so that was the Moffat family, and the other was built for the police constable at Stonehenge, although actually by the time of Jean's childhood, that was an empty cottage, she, she believes. There was no gas, no electricity, no hot water. There was laid on water, piped water to the house. Mm-hmm. Cooking was done on a fire stove. The toilet was an outside toilet with a wooden seat. There was no bathroom. There was wooden floors, but not the nice polished wooden floors of today. There were pine wood, and it wasn't until we moved up to the new cottages at the top of the hill that we got linoleum. So they're quite isolated, these cottages. This is not They're not living in Amesbury Village, which is nearby. These cottages are on the open downs. And in the interview, Jean talks about how her walk to primary school in Amesbury, which was two miles in each direction. And it was obviously a large feature of her childhood that she had to walk such a long way to go to school. What was the cause of the um, destruction of the cottages then? 
The cottages stood until 1938 and around then there was a whole series of, of works that took place at Stonehenge in effect to try and remove the modern buildings and modern facilities from around Stonehenge. So at the time there were the two cottages, there was also a cafe known as the Stonehenge Cafe, a sort of 1930s building and all of those buildings were demolished in 1938 and the visitor facilities sort of all upgraded at the same time. So they were then now back to grass and um, you wouldn't really know that they were ever there. Mm. The custodian was rehoused in some other cottages which were built about a mile away from Stonehenge, which now still stand and are still custodians' cottages. And we now lease them out to the National Trust. But they are thatched pair of semi-detached cottages just on the edge of the A303, nearer towards Amesbury. So broadly speaking, they were living in quite an isolated area, surrounded by effectively farmland and these this ancient monument. And that was kind of it, really. Yeah, it, it must have been pretty isolated. Um, Jean talks about how she used to meet a shepherd when she walked to school. So the, the whole area around Stonehenge at that time was used for pasture land and was sheep grazing. I remember this one man, he must have lived in the village. And at night he would enclose the sheep with wattle hurdles. And I know in lambing time he'd have one of these little wooden huts that you see in far from the madding crowd. There must have also been arable land because I have vague memories of a combined harvester which would move from farm to farm to reap the wheat or the hay. And it must have been, I mean, there was the main road, but this is the 1930s, so there wouldn't have been a huge amount of traffic on that road. And in effect, yeah, they are quite isolated. The family was growing their own food. She talks about things like going mushrooming and and her father shooting rabbits for dinner. So they were relatively self-sufficient as well. So it was quite a rural lifestyle. And really surprisingly, Jean's father had, he was Scottish. He'd been brought up in inner city Glasgow and her mother was from London. So these two people who had grown up in, in cities were now living in a very isolated, very open, exposed place. So that they must have been quite resourceful to sort of adapt to living there. Yes, that sounds something that they would have found difficult, really. Yes, and I think they were grateful for the... He, I mean, her father was grateful for the job. I don't think it paid hugely well, but it did come with a house, which at the time was obviously a major asset. This is not that long after the First World War that we're talking about. This is 1930s. There wouldn't have been masses of employment around. And, and I believe that her father was in the army during the First World War. So he was a, he'd had a military career, but then presumably was looking for work and found this position. Do we know how the stones looked at this time? Would they appear differently than how we know them today? Not that different. There had been a major programme of restoration and conservation work in 1919 and 1920, so a little bit before. That was when sort of the last major excavations at Stonehenge had taken place before her father's time as a custodian. So they looked pretty similar to today, actually. They had had a programme where quite a number of the stones had been set upright and set in concrete, mostly to prevent them falling over and prevent visitors getting squashed underneath them. So it wasn't work that was done to restore Stonehenge, but really just to make it safe and and to keep it in good condition. So the site was actually in relatively good condition compared to before that project. And it was a time, I guess, when people were learning about Stonehenge for the first time in terms of those excavations had really kind of increased interest in the site and had come up with quite a lot of new discoveries. So I suspect that there were quite a lot of visitors who were well informed and coming to see what the site looked like. Yes, the pioneering visitors of the 1930s. And yet here we are nearly 100 years on and we have 
a lot more science, a lot more archaeology having taken place. And we also have this large visitor centre, which is now further down the road, and these purpose-built paths around the stones as well for visitors to walk around. So Stonehenge was a tourist attraction at that time, albeit on a more minor scale. It was, yes. It was a very popular visitor attraction. So in the 1930s, there was a growing number of private cars. People for the first time had free time, free weekends, and the sort of middle and upper classes certainly would have had their own cars and been able to travel. And in fact, Stonehenge was one of those sites that was put into shell guides and advertised very strongly as you know places you could go and see with your car. Um, and we know that in 19, even in 1920, Stonehenge was receiving about 200,000 visitors a year. So that's a lot of visitors. And that was 1920. So by the mid-1930s, I suspect it was quite a lot more than that. Jean does describe the site being quite empty a lot of the time. And I'm sure it was, particularly in the early morning and evenings and everything. But it was a visitor attraction. It was famous. And people were certainly coming to visit it. In fact, in the mid-1930s, they had to build a car park because before that point, everybody was just parking on the lay-by and on the verge. And there were that many cars that they needed to build a proper car park. And does Jean also describe in her interview with her granddaughter the um, ticketing operation and this sort of thing that her father John would have needed to be responsible for? She does, yes. So she says that her father's, one of her father's role, as well as looking after the site, was to take the entry fee. He had to take, a, I think it was a shilling or a sixpence, they then gave the people a token, a metal token, which they took to the turnstile and they had to put the token in the slot in the turnstile before it would open to let them in. He would be in a little hut. So there was a system and we do have some tickets preserved from around that date, which I think are three, three pence for children and six pence for adults. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was obviously one of his tasks was to take the money off visitors and, and presumably tot up and, and keep records of that at the end of the day. And giving yes. those, those yearly stats. That's right, yeah. What are today's visitor numbers like annually? In normal years, so we're talking pre-COVID, we would be expecting up to 1.5 million visitors a year. That does include free visitors, so things like education, school groups, and obviously we get a lot of visitors who come specifically for solstice. But yeah, in around that, about that figure, and obviously it's a lot less at the moment because we have COVID restrictions, which means that international travel is really not happening at all. And a huge proportion of our visitors are from overseas. So at the moment, Stonehenge is really, really quiet, but actually that means it's a very, very nice time to visit if you're a domestic visitor. So it's a lot quieter than the normal, but that does mean that you're away from the crowds. And in the 1930s, I suppose, as Jean describes, you know, it wasn't busy all the time. Also, would you have had a more intimate experience with the stones? Because were you allowed to go into the stone circle itself? That's right, yes. Yeah. So there weren't any ropes restricting you from going inside the stone circle as we have today. Those were put in place in 1978, so a long time after Jean's time there. So yes, people would have explored the stones. People would have had, sat and had their picnics on them. We know that there's one incident I think she describes about her father having to rush out because somebody was chipping off, damaging one part of the stone. He had to rush up to the site and tell them off and sort it out. So there was damage happening, but also there was freedom. So there's lots of photographs in that period of people sitting on stones, jumping off stones. And she herself, Jean, remembers playing in and around the stones. Mm. I suppose all that has now influenced the more careful treatment of the site, hasn't it? Yeah, I think as visitor numbers increased through the 1960s and 1970s, particularly in the mid-1970s, it got to a point where there was a lot of damage taking place. And also 
a lot of graffiti and they tried a few experiments to try and preserve the site for example they put gravel down amongst the stones to try and protect the archaeology below the ground but actually what happened was the gravel used to get picked up on people's shoes and kicked up against the sides of the stones and was actually doing more damage than than just the grass so they had to take the sad decision in 1978 to restrict visitors in normal opening times at least Mm. uh, to an outer perimeter circle. Going back to Jean's family's experience of life in those years in the 1930s, what was her actual life like? She obviously played around the stones and that sort of thing, but were there other things going on in her life that stuck out to you during the interview? The family were quite close and as as we've talked about already, quite isolated in some ways. And so I guess her, her life was dominated by school and her walk to school and then growing up and and living on Salisbury Plain. She has some lovely memories of some of the nature and some of the wildlife that she was familiar with, which is really nice to read about or listen to. I remember the flowers, the cowslips. My mother made homemade wines and we'd pick a big basket of cowslip flowers and she'd make cowslip wine. And then at the top of the hill on the way into Amesbury where they built the new cottages, there was a, a circular wood and the grounds of that were covered in what we called dog violets. They had a bigger flower than the scented violet. And then in the spring, the whole of the grounds of this wood would be covered in these dog violets. And there's some really nice little excerpts. She gives a description of the house that they lived in and a lovely bit about what it was like on bath night. The water had to be heated on the on the stove. We had a big iron kettle. My brother would get the first bath. It was a tin bath in front of the fire, all nice and cosy, with the towels on the fire guard to warm. He would get the first bath, and then a bit more hot water would be added for me, and then a bit more added for my mother, and then for my father, and then the water would be thrown out onto the garden. Mm. But uh, that was bath night. Yeah. Once a week, it was really hard work yeah. getting all that ready. Yes. Yeah, that was the thing that quite stuck out to me as well, that uh, once a week was uh, quite a long time to wait for a bath and to also, yeah. also share the same water. I think that was very common, though. I think in the, most people in the 1930s would have had very similar experiences. Yes, I suppose we're, we're a lot luckier living today with sort of electric showers and all the rest of it. Were there any other elements of Jean's story that um, surprised you? Yes, she tells the story about her father having a motorbike and she says that he used this motorbike sometimes to give her a lift to school to reduce her poor feet walking all that way to school and back. And obviously at some point this motorbike came to the end of its life and her father buried it in the garden somewhere. The story in the family was it was a chain-driven motorbike, if that means anything to anybody. And... Standing at the back door of the cottage, it was in the right-hand corner of the garden, just by the hedge which divided the garden from the stones area. And and she talks about the garden quite a bit. She, obviously, the family grew vegetables and, and had quite a kind of productive garden. I assume most people did in the 1930s. But um, this motorbike was buried somewhere and presumably it still sits there. So um, <laughs> when, you know, we've been doing geophysical surveys and um, trying to investigate that landscape, if we find a large metal blob underneath the, the ground, that's probably the remains of her father's uh, motorbike. So that's quite fun. Well, yes, and of course, it won't be a mystery when it, does actually come up of the ground because you will have known about it already from this oral history. 
That's right, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, well, even future historians, when they perhaps find it, won't be baffled either. Do you have any sort of favourite parts of Jean's story? Because this is quite a unique insight, isn't it? Into a small window of time in the 1930s near Stonehenge that uh, is unique, isn't it? But do you have any favourite parts? It is unique. I think my favourite parts are where she's talking about the wildlife and the nature and living in this really rural and isolated place. So she described skylark nests, which if anyone has visited Stonehenge, you will know that the skylarks are a feature of that area and you can hear the beautiful song of the skylarks if you visit now. So that's quite nice to know that I remember us saying to her, the skylarks are still there. So, you know, for somebody who was 90 years old in Australia, thinking about the time when she was little and those skylarks are still there, that's really nice to tell her. And she also talks about her father shooting rabbits and her picking cowslips and mushrooming um, and all the flowers in the woods, the, the violets and things, which is it's just beautiful. And I hope that thanks to the National Trust and to the local landowners and the RSPB who look after parts of the Stonehenge World Heritage Site, that you know the landscape doesn't look that different to when she was there in the 1930s and all of those bird species and, and wildlife are, are still there. So it's lovely to hear that 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 was the same back in the 1930s. Yeah, that's a comforting thought as well for someone whose memories are intact of the place, that things are still fairly consistent. And are you lastly quite pleased that this story has been shared with English Heritage? It must have been quite a pleasant surprise. Yeah, it was lovely when the family got in touch with us to say that there was this connection. And I'm just so pleased that the granddaughter Emma, and our thanks go to Emma really for recording such a lovely interview with her grandmother. She's 90 years old, you know, she's not going to be around for a huge amount longer. So it's brilliant to be able to capture these memories from her in her advanced age. And every little bit kind of adds a bit of colour, adds a bit of insight and some new facts and history to what we know about Stonehenge. And it's it's lovely to be able to put kind of names and faces to the kind of black and white written histories that we have of that period. So brilliant that we've got this interview and it, um, thanks so much to the Grey family and to the Moffat family for sharing their memories. And is there a chance, apart from obviously hearing it on the podcast today, that people will be able to hear excerpts of this interview as they go around the visitor centre in future, perhaps? Yeah, we're actually doing a small project at the moment to gather quite a few bits of oral history. So various different people who were involved, particularly in the 1950s and 60s restoration and excavations at the site. So yeah, we're working on making that material accessible, potentially on site, possibly online. Um, watch this space. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be delving into 300 years of military history at Berwick-upon-Tweed Barracks in Northumberland. Thanks for listening. See you next time.